0: So you know, Descartes said, "There's res extensa and res corporealis." You know, there's tables and chairs and length and breadth and marks. That's it. There's nothing else in the world. And the mastery is to be able to measure, not to live in it, not to experience its sacredness. And his whole thinking, the Cartesian philosophy, was escaping from a body that distracts you. Even though in Indian philosophy, not only is the body in the mind, but it has layers and layers and layers of interconnectedness with the sacred living universe. Everything is an expression of the divine. And we connect to the divinity of others through the food. That's why for me, food as the currency of life, of of sacredness is so important.
1: Welcome back to the Sounds of Sand presented by Science and Non-Duality. Today, we wanted to share a recording from the Sand Archives And this conversation is between scientist and activist, Dr. Vandana Shiva, and friend of SAND, presenter and post-capitalism organizer and writer, Alnor Lada. And this powerful conversation was part of the SAND series called Wisdom in Times of Crisis, presented during the COVID-19 lockdowns. And in their conversation, they talk about Dr. Shiva's work as a quantum physicist her views on non-duality and science and how they can reconcile one another, ecology and activism, and they talk about climate collapse and the dangers of our lives being controlled by a select few of people in Silicon Valley. And of course, they talk a bit about the pandemic, which was raging during the time of this recording. And we apologize for the very low quality of the audio in this episode. Uh, We did our best to clean it up as well as we could for the podcast format. Dr. Shiva was connecting from India and Alnor from Costa Rica, both over Zoom. And there's a lot of static and sometimes it's hard to hear the voices, but we hope you can listen past the low quality of their audio connection to the powerful and resonant beauty of their words. And at one point, Dr. Shiva even talks about Zoom, uh, the all over the world but we're already connected through our collective consciousness so we hope that you can listen from that space and and perhaps even listen with an ear towards compassion if you're in the privileged few who have a steady and good internet connection all day uh, it's not like that for most of the people around the world as the internet can be very spotty in many places around the world like india and costa rica and so Zoom calls with the levels of static and noise that you'll hear today are quite common in the so-called developing world. So we invite you to listen also with that empathy to this deep and timeless wisdom of this conversation between Dr. Vandana Shiva and Anor Lada here on the Sounds of Sand.
2: Welcome to science and non-duality. What is non-duality? The universal forces. It's the collective conscious being aware. Trauma is not the external event that happens. Trauma is the impact of that event, which is the disconnection from ourselves. That
0: matter is energy, energy is matter. That's what EMC squared is
2: about.
1: There's a language without nouns. There is a language without subjugation. There's a
3: language without objectifying.
2: But if it's recorded, then we there is a collapse, but if it's not, then it's the infinite potentiality. So this morning, I would like to introduce first the host, um, the Aunor, uh, who will be holding the space for the conversation. Aunor Lada is a writer and a speaker and an activist. Aunor focuses on the intersection of political organizing, system thinking, and narrative work. He was the co-founder and executive director of The Rules, a global network of activists, researchers, and writers focused on addressing the root causes of our civilizational polycrisis. Aonur comes from a Sufi lineage and also explores and writes about the intersection between politics and spirituality in troubled times. And Honor is a co-founder of Tierra Valiente, a post-capitalist community in northern Costa Rica. So he's with us this morning from Costa Rica, from the jungle of Costa Rica. Welcome, Honor. Thank you for being with us.
3: Mm, thank you for having me, and um, it's an honor to be introducing Vandana. Um, I think Vandana is going to do some opening remarks, uh, and uh, we'll open the space. And, and I'll just give a brief intro to Vandana before we do that, and then we'll move into a, a Q and
2: um,
3: I, I think most people uh, know Vandana's work, um, and she's she's been a big influence on on many of us in, in both the the world of Uh, the worlds of activism, organic farming, biodiversity, um, science for social good, and and many, many other fields. Uh, She's a physicist, an ecologist, an activist, a writer. She's wrote dozens of books and uh, edited dozens of articles. Um, She's the founder of Navdanya, which is a movement for biodiversity conservation and farmers' rights. Uh, She's also the founder and director for the Research Foundation for Science, Technology, and Natural Resource Policy. And um, she's, she's one of the great living activists and really a, a, a treasure to the movement. And so um, maybe we just start with that and start with Vandana and, uh, and, and a prayer for, for Vandana and, and her lineage and the ancestors she walks with when, when she does this work.
0: Thank you very much, Zaya and Mauricio. Thank you, Alnur. Thank you for all of you who are here for this dialogue wisdom in our times, and for an amazing group that attracted me immediately, science and non-duality, because my life's journey has been precisely a journey of a science that's not dualistic. That's why I went into looking at the foundations of quantum theory, being totally dissatisfied with trying to make sense of a rich living world. I grew up in the forest of the Himalaya. And i I can see the forest behind you. I'm right now sitting in what used to be my mother's cow shed and when I wanted to leave academics and I was in doubt, you know, how, how will I do this work for the earth? Uh, and my mother said, you want to give up your job, just give it up and take the cow shed. Don't worry about rents, don't worry about funds. And this is where I started the research foundation 40 years ago. Um, my search for the foundations of quantum theory was for a non dualistic science. And I noticed one of the words that came from the participants was potentiate. That's what quantum theory does. Yeah. Mechanical physics gets you stuck, you're a lump. You just sit there, and you can't change till there's a force that hits you. And you can't be related to another lump, so we are all separate. My thesis was on non locality and non separability and indeterminism in quantum theory, the basic principles. But around that same time, having seen a forest disappear in my mountains before I left for Canada to uh, study quantum theory, um, I came across this amazing movement just by hearsay. You know, I was troubled about the forest, and people said, "But the Chipko has started," and Chipko means to hug. And I'm waiting for the end of the corona lockdown for us to hug the trees and hug each other again with love with our fullness, with our being part of the earth. So I learned how to hug from Chipko. Of course, I learned how to hug my parents. Um, but Chipko, from ordinary village women, who'd never been to school up in the Himalayan forest. I learned they were experts of biodiversity, and I learned humility. I'd done nuclear physics. And, and you get here, because you're training in an era. And of course, you think you know more. And then there were these amazing women. Who didn't just know every herb, every plant, but they knew how the forest connects to the water, the water, the soil, and they said, These are not timber mines. These are the sources of our water, our soil, our fresh air. And now, 40 years later, the UN talks about the ecological functions of biodiversity. Just yesterday was the International Biodiversity Day, the talk on this. But if they only talk to indigenous people, not only would they know that. People know that there are biodiverse functions and people recognizing the contributions protect the mountain, protect the forest. Unlike what's going on with saying, oh, we extracted the resources, the minerals, the oil. Now let's extract the functions of the biodiversity. And that's a new aspect of my work on non-duality. I wasn't supposed to be in agriculture. But 1984, the place where I had studied for my M.S.E., Honours in Physics, erupted in violence. And uh, I then realized that uh, something was wrong. That same year, Bhopal disaster happened. So I started to look at what's going on. I did a book for the United Nations University. And I realized that not only had we separated ourselves from nature, but we had brought the war, the concentration gap, the war chemicals from Hitler into our food production. And since that day, I took a pledge that I would walk the path of a nonviolent farming based on our relationship with living soil, living plants, living biodiversity. And three years later, I'm with these chemical companies who now talk about patenting the seed. And a patent means a claim to invention. And they said, we'll do genetic engineering in order to take a patent and we'll have a global law to make it illegal for any farmer to have their own seed. I heard them. I said, this is an empire of a life and you don't invent the seed. The seed is not a machine. That's when I realized there was not just a dualism uh, being introduced between life and the chemical industry, but an hierarchy of knowledge being created because women have evolved the seed. Nature has given the seed, and our pledge in Navdanya is we've received these seeds from nature and our ancestors, and we owe it to future generations to hand them over in the beauty, integrity, diversity in which we received it. And that's the work we do. We were just saving the seed as our spiritual duty to the earth and to creation. In the process... And agriculture has evolved, which could feed two times India's population. And if we worked with nature, we worked with the laws of biodiversity, we could actually feed two times the world's population. We would need a billion people to be starving. And we would need two billion people to be very sick. Which brings me to another duality. The duality that was created between people and some people. You see the same anthropocentrism. That said, we are separate from nature, written into bacon saying, "Masculine birth of time, we are not part of nature. We are master and conquerors." Boyle saying, the idea of a sacred nature comes in the way of our building an empire over lesser creatures. But the lesser creatures, when just not, not just the plants the, and the animals, the lesser creatures, including anyone with a slightly darker color than a European white. <laughs> the blacks then became property to be taken as slaves. It redefined women to be passive objects and it turned a whole um, hierarchy, it created an hierarchy on, in religion, uh, making one religion a civilizing nation. But all this went hand in hand with desacralizing our world, desacralizing the living world desacralizing our bodies and I can't believe the so-called science that says the mind is the brain here and the body is separate and it's not thinking and people who work, the peasants, the farmers, the women are unthinking bodies and the real minds have to escape from their bodies ever since the time of Descartes, to get real knowledge. I would have thought this illusion that has brought us to such a brink of destruction. It has caused the six mass extinction. It has driven the climate catastrophe. It has turned half of humanity into refugees. Um, It has created unemployment. It has desertified the soil. It's created a water crisis. And yet, that part of escape from the body of man's mastery over the living world doesn't stop. I'm just reading a book and I'd like to share it with this community. Yeah, Thank so let me just you. share this with you because this is the kind of time we're in. Uh, so, you know, Descartes said, there's res sexton and red you know. There's tables and chairs and length and breadth and marks. That's it. There's nothing else in the world. And the mastery is to be able to measure, it, not to live in it not to experience its sacredness. And his whole thinking, the Cartesian philosophy, was escaping from a body that distracts you. Even though in Indian philosophy, not only is the body in the mind, but it has layers and layers and layers of interconnectedness with the sacred living universe. Everything is an expression of the divine. And we connect to the divinity of others through the food, that's why, for me, food as the currency of life, of, of sacredness, is so important. Through the breath, through knowing, you know. It's not an accident that Indians love to use their hands. We even eat with our hands. Because sensory knowledge is very, very important in a living world. We know and interact through discrimination. vijyan our word for science, is the ability to separate falsehood from truth. The ethical from the unethical, dharma from adharma. And then of course, bliss when you have managed to really know you are one, non-dual, sacred, divine universe. But this is the world a bunch of overgrown boys playing with toys in Silicon Valley are thinking. They say, we've got to complete Descartes' work of escaping from the prison of the body. This sacred body is a prison. And then Ray Kurzweil, who is the Google's head advisor at I, says, we will be software. What, after all, is the difference between a human who has upgraded her body and brain using nanotechnology and computational technology and a robot who has gained an intelligence? No difference. But worse, because you are a spiritual group, these people have slept through the fact that spiritual, we are spiritual beings. Civilizations over thousands of years, 60,000 years of Australian Aboriginal knowledge is about the sacred. That we are spiritual beings seeking our humanity and our earthiness to live in the right livelihood on this planet. And here they want, you know, within a decade, they want us all imprisoned in digital prisons. I mean, if you, I've written a new blog. On my reflections of my five decade journey, and I ended it with a new patent I found, number 060606, on patenting human body functions and human brain functions, and creating a whole new economy from that, allocating us to us the value of who we are value from within, but value through a cryptocurrency. And one cryptocurrency transaction, I found, takes more energy than an entire household in America, which is very wasteful in energy anyway. But this is what Ray is thinking of. He's written a book called The Age of the Spiritual Machine. Our civilization, for the first time, will have the ability to be spiritual. Our civilization will then expand outward, turning all the dumb matter and energy. It's not dumb. They made a mistake saying, the, you know, the, your prayer in the beginning about Mother Earth was so beautiful. Mother Earth is, is living and she's divine. It was that Cartesian divide, the Newtonian divide that said, nature is dead matter, which we can manipulate too well. They are still stuck with that 200, 300-year-old mistake. Dumb matter and energy we encounter into sublimely intelligent, transcendent matter and energy. We'll make it through our machines and computers. So in a sense, we can say the singularity, because they believe this merger with the machine is a singularity. They say for the first time, merging with the machine, not with the universe, not with the consciousness of the universe, but that merger with the machine will ultimately infuse the universe with spirit. Could there be a bigger illusion than this? This is our work as a community, to be able to to work with the spiritual forces to prevent this dystopia from becoming, becoming the reality.
3: Thank you for that, Vandana. Beautiful. Thank you for the overview and, and and the reminders and i want to get back to a lot of the things you you said but maybe we we, we start and root in, in the spiritual uh, and in the personal and just to hear a little bit about your spiritual journey and when we were talking last week uh, you mentioned where you were in uh near rishikesh in the valley you near know, the ganga um and all the teachers and influences you had and your parents had and maybe we start with that place in the spiritual journey and then we will we will come back to ray kurtzwa if you will
0: So I'm very blessed to have been born in the Himalaya, to have grown up in the Himalaya, which is really the land where everyone comes uh, who's a spiritual teacher. Uh, And uh, I grew up with my parents teaching us, "Don't don't hurt the tree, don't pluck a flower without apologizing. So our very training grew up in that, was in that spiritual tradition of the earth as sacred and living. But because at that time, and I'm talking about the 60s and 70s, some of the most important gurus and teachers of India lived in my valley and in Rishikesh. Ananda, Maima was up the road from where I am right now. Sant Kripal Singh was our spiritual teacher. Shivanand, Swami Shivanan, amazing. And my father actually wrote the contract for um, the, the transcendent, Maheshi 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 Yogi to be able to create his house, where the Beatles then came and did transcendental meditation. So we, I know our weekends were either in the forest or visiting a spiritual, we were very young, but all of that seeped into us. And my parents were very, very spiritual and both of them, before they went, they announced and now I'm going. And part of what our dear Ray Kurzweil that I quoted you, part of what they're trying to do is we've got to make our body a machine so we don't die. They have no idea that it's just another transformation. And both my mother and my father realized that we are part of a bigger world and uh, birth and death are part of the same cycle. And they went with consciousness. They said their goodbyes. And... Uh, and I just feel blessed to have had bad parents like that and to have been exposed to the, to the teachers who have shaped India's spiritual tradition in our modern times.
3: And, and how, did, how did that influence shape your political work? What's the, the, the correlation, the fifth, if you will?
0: Well, you know, for me, the forest was an extension from my, of myself or I was an extension of the forest. And there was no separation. Uh, But also I think that spirituality gave me the the dharma to say you cannot just sit still and let harm be done. So my activism really flows out of the concept of dharma. My my karma yoga is from my dharma and my dharma comes from that spiritual exposure. Every activism of mine is for the sacredness of life. Whether it be saving the seed, defending the forest, our sacred Ganga, for which so many spiritual teachers have given their lives. Um, And now, for me, the sanctity of the human being. Just because of a few of them, overgrown boys who knew how to do analytic algorithms a little better, they're suddenly determining the future of humanity. With a lot of violence, a lot of imposition, um, and that sacredness of being human to me is really my next step of this spiritual journey.
3: Mm. You want, maybe say a little more about that. What do you mean by next step?
0: Well, you know, partly because we, we never lived in a society. Where, where our integrity was being in, encroached. We, I was born in a post-war world. We'd seen the horrible uh, behavior in Hitler's Germany, and the Nuremberg trials, the Nuremberg code, the human rights. So human rights were secure. And from the 70s onwards, what I saw a bad development model do is, threaten nature and the integrity of ecosystems and push species to extinction. And as I've written in one of my blogs, even the explosion of epidemic diseases, uh, like the corona, the SARS, the Ebola, the MERS, the NIPA, are all because the forests were invaded into. And these are sacred homes of indigenous people. And the lives that have been sacrificed to defend these homes. But every virus has come from a forest animal and become a virus for us. So that was so clear. It's only with this corona and the lockdown, and every day there's a new imposition. You can't move without a surveillance system. That's for your health and safety, but it's really for surveillance. And then I come across this pattern, 060606, and it's basically saying, mining body activity, mining body activity, you know, it's going to give everyone a little watch. And, um, and mining it, of course, through computers and sensors. And then we become users of the machine. We are, we are no more human beings. We are no more full-fledged part of a sacred universe. We are not anonymous. We are not self-organized, we aren't conscious, we are users of, of the machine. And then the machine, having downloaded our body data and our brain function, will go through algorithms that decide what is the right way to be. And then will allocate us value, the cyber currency value. So, A, autonomy and sacredness is being mined without our permission, to we are being reduced from human beings and sentient beings and jivas to users of machine. We are appendages of machine. And then our value, you know, in a sacred universe where the divine permeates all of life, we are part of the divine. We are being turned into users and our value is no more divinity. Our value is a cryptocurrency. This is a, Probably, if you ask me, it's bigger than Columbus, it's bigger than slavery, it's bigger than the witch hunts, not only because all of humanity is being sucked into it, but with the narrowest of thinking, the more Cartesian mindset with the most violent instruments of control. That is why each of us seeking our full divinity, seeking our full sacredness is also see- exercising our spiritual power you know to say dumb energy
3: so i want to talk a bit about um let's say theory of change you know there there's, there's two two lenses and this is very simplistic but one way is to say okay let's go out as you call them a, a handful of boys and we have this, uh, you know, spiritually immature, uninitiated, largely autistic white male Silicon Valley set that is disproportionately determining future human relationship with things like artificial intelligence, cryptocurrency, etc. Yeah, on the one side, and then you have the the mass social movement and the role of people. But uh, and I want to get to that, but I, I want to first start with th- this this other. And 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 start with the place of of dualism because there's a lot of fear around the dualism of the other. If we were to hold a place of compassion, uh, and I'm I'm not even saying recommending this, but just for the thought experiment, if we were to hold a place of compassion for the Gates, Zuckerberg, you know, DiGiRatti, and the role, the archetypal role they're playing in this in this moment of the Kali Yuga, what would you say to them? And what what's your sense on how, how would we if at all, shift their perspective? Is it possible?
0: Well, for one, I think I'm being very compassionate calling them boys, you know? Otherwise I could have called them Hitler. I could have called them all the experiences of the really bad behavior. I could have called them a rakshas, which works wonderfully in India's epic stories. uh, so I'm, I'm giving them their humanity, except that I'm con- contextualizing. I mean, I've learned so much from indigenous people. And the most ordinary indigenous person has so much wisdom. And then I see these people with, knowing so little about anything except making software and gadgets that work their software. And uh, so, I, you know, it, I, I feel a bit sorry for them. And, uh, and that's where my compassion comes in, but my, uh, you know, the Durga in me says, you can't let the destructive forces determine the future. You've got to have the creative forces, the spiritual forces um, play their role.
3: Do you feel that they're, they're playing an archetypal role in our awakening in some way?
0: Oh, for sure. You know, when I started to save seeds, I used to always be very grateful to Monsanto. I said, if they hadn't thought of patenting seed, where would I give my life to seed seeding? Where would we have saved the seeds? Just because they had to be saved. And we have soil-tolerant and flood-tolerant seeds that are today rescuing the people after the cyclone on farm. And they rescued them. In the ninety-nine cyclone, and every site, every three, four years, there's a devastating cyclone. So I'm grateful that if if they had just been like everyone else, well, I'd have been doing my normal thing, right? If that forest hadn't been cut, I would have lived a life of a quantum physicist, maybe somewhere. But I wanted to come back to India and say thank you. But I wanted to then protect the, at that time the forest, um, and now I'm very grateful because. We were taking our humanity for granted. And just like people were taking the seed for granted, and it took the threat of patenting to realize, no, these seeds are not your inventions, they're not machines. Now that we are being defined into being appendages of machines, I think it is a moment to wake up to our deep humanity, our deep spirituality. So we can be grateful to them too.
3: Mm, yeah, yeah shukran. so they, they say in the in, in the Kali Yuga which is the, the, the dark ages uh, you know the fourth uh, of the four cycles in, in, in the Vedic cyclical history that also the the Kali Yuga is the time of the most amount of light and it is the time of the most assistance from interdimensional beings deities etc and so in, in some sense that that uh, Uh, Our awakening is happening through our choice to be here right now, to incarnate in this period. And I want to ask you about the role of what ordinary citizens, people in the sand community, politically, what can we do? Spiritually, what can we do? And to also say there's been many conversations, I feel, even the duration of this week, where there's this idea that um, dualism, there's a fear of dualism. That to, to, to be an activist or to be in judgment creates more duality. Um, and so maybe you can comment with that lens as well.
0: Uh, so, uh, you know, I think Indian philosophy, that way has been made sophisticated. It's realized where they are, the doers, but always brought them into an interconnectedness of balance, harmony, creativity, not hierarchies. Um, so I was talking about the different, you know, the self, us as a being, the outermost, the food and the breath. Um, that vijan, that discernment is a vital part of our consciousness. And one shouldn't be afraid of a higher consciousness. If your higher consciousness is able to guide you between doing the ethical thing and doing the unethical thing or being a consumer that's destroying the planet and being a regenerator who's regenerating the planet, that is not dualism. It is discernment.
3: Beautiful. I love that. It's not dualism. It's discernment. And I think partly, you know, our fear of duality creates more duality. You know, And we have incarnated into a planet that is in the third dimension and in the material realm. And so it does require actually an understanding of duality, an understanding of consequence in order to transcend that duality. But that's the messiness of what it is to be alive.
0: And so, so, you know, it's very interesting that I, I talked about emptying out a living earth of its life and making it dead matter in order to exploit it. And then you we've had in recent times an awakening of spirituality, uh, but a spirituality that's still outside the material world. Yeah? A lot of meditation, a lot of people come to yoga, ethership. Um but if we realize that the universe is sacred and every living being is part of that sacredness, and each of us is interconnected, just like in quantum theory, is nothing separate. We are interconnected in our being. That interconnectedness is a sacred interconnectedness. And part of it is material. Yeah? Part of it is material, not just in the sense that our bodies have to be respected, but the food we eat in India, we say annam. Brahman, that God is in the food, it's in the way you cultivated it. That's why another text that Upnishad, says, the highest dharma is growing and giving of good food. And the worst of dharma is not growing food or serving bad food. So it's not an accident that India has had such rich food traditions because it was part of a spiritual tradition. It wasn't part of gastronomy and cuisine. It is part of doing your best through the food because it is the sacred currency of life. But now with, you know, I've done many books on food and health because we are now realizing that organic has far more nutrition. People eating organic can heal their damaged gut in a week, a week of a diet, getting off chemical diets can heal. That our gut, which is called Agni in Ayurveda, this is where all the transformation takes place of the food that comes from the soil and the plants and the bees and the butterflies and the earthworms and is transformed into becoming what we are. 60 trillion, 6,200 trillion, they don't know exactly. Nearly 60 to 100 trillion microbes are in our gut. And that's 90% of who we are. We are interbeings. So this idea of this nature here and humans there is so wrong, and I feel very sad that some of my environmental friends in the West, who now talk a lot about the natural world and the natural world and the natural world, don't know how to live lives taking a sacred nature as part of who they are. It's still carrying on that ecological apartheid of separation. And now they're talking, they're supporting a whole crazy idea in which Silicon Valley is finding big money. You see, if 7.3 billion people could be stopped from eating real food that comes from the earth and could be forced to eat lab food, can you imagine the market? And a lot of my environmental friends are saying, we've got to get the farmers off the land. We've got to get food into the lab. No. My 35 years of serving the earth through agriculture has shown me that agriculture is actually our best service to the earth. And when we do agriculture as service, even in the opening song, there were some beautiful lines, you know, of let me give to you. It's only in agriculture we can give back to the earth. And by giving back to the earth, she gives us even more in abundance, And that's how we, can, we are seeing we can feed two times India's population. And we don't have to destroy the planet for agriculture just because GMOs destroyed the Amazon and the prairies. Doesn't mean you have to assume agriculture can only be done that way. Just as it's wrong to assume that human beings can only be consumers. It's wrong to assume humanity can only think mechanistically. We have so many potentiates, so many potential, And uh, it's, it's this moment of very severe threat, of convergence, of so many catastrophes, from the corona to the economic pandemic of half of humanity losing livelihoods, to the hunger pandemic, to the new conquest pandemic, saying, Oh, a new colony, our oh, minds and bodies of these silly humans. We'll now improve them. Uh, we are at a very, very exciting moment where all the teachings of our ancestors, all the wisdoms of the past, all our own lives, consciousness and awakening, and humanity as one, in one planet, acting as one humanity, because it's not, you know, a Zoom link, thank you very much to Zoom, but uh, our consciousness connects us anyway.
3: Oh, thank, you, thank you for saying that, Vandana. It's beautiful. For, for those of us um, in the sand community, you know, many of us living in the West, many of us living in city environments, um, not necessarily growing our own food, um, what, what is, as, as sort of an elder sister in the movement and, and council, what, what would you say to us for what we should be thinking about and what we should be doing to be more political, uh, to, to support food sovereignty globally?
0: Well, I think we should as a spiritual discipline at least grow one plant on a little windowsill, maybe 10 plants if you have a balcony, maybe 100 plants if you have a garden, because it's like that little tulsi in every house of India where to the sacred basil, we say, I can't take care of the whole universe. But I see the universe in you, and I will take care of you. So I think it's important just to reclaim our spiritual connection with the earth, with the seed, with the plant, with our food, with life. Second is because of the plants, and this is the work I do, so I can tell you there's such huge investments, and um, there is just so much media work, and every scientific institution uh, is talking about this lab food as the solution. Um, I do think that a very important step is creating food communities, even where you can't grow all the food you need, nor the farmer who grows your food. And it'll be an effort. But, you know, yoga is an effort. Nothing, I mean, destruction comes fast. You want to spray Roundup, it's very easy. You want to drop a bomb through a drone, very easy but every activity of care is an effort. And it's only in recent times, effort for the good work, effort for care, effort for regeneration has been made to look like a drudgery. We need to reclaim the sacredness of work, the sacredness of effort. And part of that sacredness of effort is building community. We will have to reclaim the commons. The commons of our food, the commons of our life, the commons of our knowledge, the commons of our spirituality. And creating food communities is the most important thing we can do because scientifically we know the closer the food is to home, the better it is. The more diverse the food, the happier your gut microbiome. Organic, only small farms can do that, better than chemical. So no matter uh, which way you look, and, and not industrially processed but artisanally processed, No matter which way you look, a local food economy is an ecological imperative, a climate imperative, a species-intentive, a health imperative, and a spiritual imperative.
3: And it's interesting, this idea of uh, reclaiming the sacredness of our effort, because there's a huge amount of effort put into propping up this existing system. It's just hidden from us. So we don't know where our waste goes, and we don't know where our food comes from or where our energy goes from, but it's huge levels of exploitation, what's the so-called development, you know, which is essentially robbing the global south of its resources in order to prop up our way of living. And so we're at this really interesting moment with COVID where people are starting to ask these questions, the, the, the understanding the emperor has no clothes. And so maybe we close just with with investment and understanding uh, of COVID before we open up for questions. And, and what, is this, what does this moment mean as... Um, the, the sort of so-called normality we've been living uh, ha- has been exposed and, and that sort of, that the unearthing has happened, the awakening has initiated.
0: So, of course, you know, the COVID and the lockdown has given a lot of space to other species. I don't use the word nature because we are nature. So when we say nature came back, we are telling ourselves we are not part of the animal world. Um, You know, everywhere you see elephants and tigers and leopards roam the street, but exactly at the same time, every government is giving new clearances for more ecological destruction. Look at Trump, you can look at in India. Um, What you said about the invisibility of destruction, therefore we don't know how we are participating. Uh, you know, my work in agriculture, I, I realized that you use 10 units of energy to produce one unit of food in an industrial system. When you make it factory farming of animals, it's 100 units of energy to one unit of food. And then when you make it, these sky rises with lots of electricity and lots of artificial nutrients. You know, four plants need the equivalent of 30 refrigerators. You know, uh, Amazon has invested hugely. They're saying now they bought Whole Foods and they're saying now we will, for the cities, for the for the vegetables, we're going to have these artificial uh, elevated systems, which again means you are discounting the earth and our creative power. You're basically saying soil, I don't care for you. Sun, I don't need you. But these systems... We'll need about a thousand units of energy to produce one unit of nutritionally empty food. The two questions I ask people who, you know, these are always presented to me, and I say, "Give me your energy audit," and they don't have it because I know it's about a thousand times. And I say, "Give me your nutritional audit," because if industrial food became nutritionally empty and full of toxins, if you're not letting the soil nourish the plant, you know, my work over these decades has shown that. It's not the nitrogen, phosphorus, potassium, it's actually declining the soil fertility. It's the microbes that feed on the organic matter you give that create the soil fertility. And our soil has gone up 100% in nitrogen, 100% increase in carbon, 30% increase in zinc, 25% increase in magnesium. Now these are in the plant and then they're in our food and then they create the metabolic balance in our food system. Um, a lot of new work, a lot of new ecological work is being done on the total footprint of what a lot of people are finding, thinking is an ecological alternative. But if you take all the mining, the lithium, then you know that electric car doesn't look so good because Bolivia had a toppling of its elected president, eva Morales, just for lithium because he nationalized the lithium mining. Um, if you add all of that, Actually, the footprint is so big, and I think especially in the North, where consumers are always being made to feel they're part of a green solution, but that solution is a very toxic, polluted solution and a lot of ecological damage. It just comes to our part of the world. So we are Earth citizens, you know. I've written about Earth democracy. I see us as members of the Earth family. And as members of the Earth family, I've been sending these messages to the burnings and the others saying, you can't have a Green New Deal, which is about the Earth as a national system. You have to have a new relationship with the Earth at the planetary level. And that's what we are working on. And that's how the footprint will reduce and the heart print and the head print and the hand print will increase as we build local economies.
3: Mm, beautiful. Um, thank you, Vandana. And yeah, it's, it's interesting that you, you sit in your, your cow shed that, you know, full circle, you know, as... Uh, uh, and, uh, from a yes, full
0: circle for me, yeah. I mean, I could have been stuck in a hotel room or I could have been stuck in my deli a place where I, you know, some of my official work I do from there. But I choose to stay here. literally in the nick of time. And I'm so grateful.
1: And thank you for listening to The Sounds of Sand. We invite you to explore more of our talks, dialogues, videos, articles, events, and offerings through our website, scienceandnonduality.com. If you've enjoyed this conversation please consider becoming a member to access our massive library of sand content available exclusively to sand members and we would love it if you could leave us a review on apple podcasts google and spotify and share this episode with your family friends and all sentient beings be well